definitely on different hairstyles. Yeah, and but now I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's definitely a style. So yeah, cool. yeah. Um, they've got their own approach. I think we should all have our own approach one way or the other, right? In some degree. Hey, welcome to the big story. I'm Alex, um, and today we've got Jim Zub, who holds the hey. record. With the shortest name, this is. I cool. do. Is this the shortest name? Wow! Is it? Is it? Well, you beat Jim Rug. <laughs> Just up. barely. That's right. One letter up on Jim Rug, so that's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, you know. Yeah. That's I good. was wondering when you said holds the record. I was like, oh, what? What are we talking like, about here? <laughs> Fast. <laughs> what record are we talking about? What the are we? Getting? Will be the trophies in the mail. So that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a classic no prize trophy. Keeps it keeps it simple. Makes uh, finding the Twitter handle easy as well. You know. Yeah, totally. Oh, I know. That's it's like so, such a blessing. Like it's so funny. Like I have a pretty different, you know, not a common name with Morrissey and. Uh, and like I, I got everything there was to get except for just my basic URL. Right. And and it's like, and some kid in Jamaica has it. And I've been so upset by this one thing. Well, I'm sure they would be upset if if you had gotten to it first. So, you know, the, the race I mean, went to somebody. Everything yeah. else, you know. <laughs> it's it's the it's this weird sort of like um. But it does feel strange if someone has the same name as you and you feel like we have a bond and yet and yet I know nothing about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Well, it's like this weird sort of alternate reality twin, you know, right, right. I mean, I, I'm sure like I have a friend whose name is Dave Smith, who I joked for decades that he had he had like the worst witness relocation uh, program crew. They were like, I don't know, Dave Smith. Let's just give him the name Dave Smith. And yet, because it's so common, maybe it's brilliant because it's then. Common. Yeah, you'll yeah. never find them. Yeah, sure. like there, there's seven hundred thousand days. Right, that's are all good. You're yeah, good. He's, he's safe as safe as houses. The John um, Doe of John Doe's. Yeah, totally. Um, I so I grew up with a I grew up. Uh, there was a, a Zub family in my hometown growing up. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. I know. Well, mine mine is a pen name. It's short for uh, hmm. Zubkovich, which is oh, uh, Ukrainian. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. but no one could remember how to say it properly or spell it properly. So in in the, you know, the style of Stan Lee, who was Stan Lee Lieber, we just, you know, hack the yeah. end off there. Everyone called me Zub anyways. Like my friends in high school, there were multiple gyms in school. So it was always Zub this and Zub that. Yeah. And same thing with college. I think the weirdest thing is, is as it became kind of propagated for my professional career, like everyone just says Zub. So my editors mm -hmm. will call me Zub and you know, marketing people or whatever. And I'm talking and it, so there is a weird familiarity, like everyone's my friend. Cause that's yeah. what I'm so used to them <laughs> the way they're, you know, I'm used to them saying it, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. What, what is, what does that come into play when your, your last name becomes your first name? Like in, in just, well, it's a thing. So it actually was sort of christened by, um, trying to remember uh how it all kind of came about it was really sort of weird one of my earliest conventions actually so i went to san diego comic-con 2002 mm -hmm. and i was out for dinner with god must have been like james kachalka scott mcleod leah hernandez okay. uh so leah hernandez i think said to me at one point she's like everyone's got a, a nickname or they've got a name that we would know you as in the industry we can't call you jim 
Because right. if everyone says casually in conversation in the comic industry, Jim, currently what at that time and still, I think to this day, you'd mean Jim Lee's. You're like, oh, I was out, out for dinner with Jim last night. Yeah. If it was the 80s, you'd mean Jim Shooter because sure, he was the editor-in-chief of Marvel. Yeah. Right. It's whoever's the alpha, right? Yeah. So if you said Neil for a long time, it would have been Neil Adams. And then yeah. eventually it shifts over to Neil Gaiman. You know, yep. if you say Frank, you mean Frank Miller. Yep. So if you can talk casually, like, oh, yeah, I was hanging out with Frank. You're like, oh, of course. Like, who doesn't, I guess, right? So the, she said, you'll never get Jim, so you need something else. And so I actually said, well, all my friends call me Zub. And she goes, good news. No one will take it. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> I was like, all right, great. And that kind of it just sort of stuck from there. It was nice. Did anyone any pull any poppers and no no horns? No, no, no there was no, uh, no musical notes or you know heaven's chorus or anything. It was just uh, yeah, that was how it went down. <laughs> and she was right. You know, it's really useful actually when people are talking. It's funny too because sometimes people will be introduced to me just through the name, right? They'll just say, oh, this is Zub. You know, he yeah. does Dungeons and Dragons and whatever. And they're like, cool, man, cool. And then someone eventually will say Jim and they'll be like, oh no, your name's Jim. I was like, well, yeah, but everyone just calls me Zub anyway. So it's fine. It's fine. It works. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's, it's, it's a good moniker in the terms that it is completely notable. You know? It is notable. It is yeah. notable. Yeah. It makes it easy. Uh, sure. You know, nice, short, can be a punctuation. It can be a swear. It's great. Yeah. So, no, you know, it's like, what has he done now? Yeah, yeah. It's Good. firm but not aggressive. That's right. <laughs> it's playful. It's yeah. uh yeah, it works, it works relatively yeah. well. So it's nice. And it's like if you were like if you were like a nemesis, it's a good one too of um Zub. Zub. You know? Yeah, I will destroy him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure if there are other writers who would love to do Dungeons and Dragons comics or something, they probably use it like a curse now. For sure, That's for right. sure. All those I, fantasy books. Oh, I was just reading um, the uh, the word bros themselves are they're, they're putting together a, a real uh, interesting Dungeons and Dragons esque um, yeah. indie project that they that they let, let me read. And uh, cool. it's a very it's a very clever idea. So pretty. It's, pretty yeah, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role playing games are bigger than they've ever been. It's, it's a very surreal place to be. Growing yeah. up, you know, playing D and D and going through the satanic panic of the eighties and all that <laughs> stuff, and being used to like having to hide your dice and don't talk about these things and amongst the most mixed so, company. Dude, yeah, it's so funny. Like I was, I was a little kid, and it's like the late eighties. In the 80s, I mean, late 70s, and we have we used to go over to my dad's uh, college buddy's house mm -hmm. to go watch the University of Michigan games. Like that's what right. we did on Saturdays in the in the fall. And I go there, and all his he had three boys, and they weren't there, and like they were always there. And and I'm like, where where are they? <laughs> they go, oh, they're upstairs, and they're playing some sort of game. And I was like, right. okay. So I went upstairs. And I just sat and watched, you know, the older boys mm -hmm. play D D for the whole day. And, right? and I'm like, oh, this that's is how we used to do it. They were marathon sessions. We oh, used yeah, to like, I would go to one of my, and when I was in high school, there was my buddy, Chris, I'd go to his place, you know, like Friday night, we'd start a game up. We'd play until literally people were falling asleep mm -hmm. and then we'd crash out and then wake up the next morning and he'd make breakfast and then we'd just keep going right back into it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were obsessed. It was amazing, you know. It was yeah, it was so it was so I mean, I'm so I'm so thrilled that like it the the popularity of it has just, you know, ex, you know, exploded. It's um, incredible. It it is a surreal surreal thing to see it coming back in such 
force, but I think it speaks to a broader trend in terms of people don't just want to be force fed, you know, passive entertainment, like show me stuff, show me stuff. They want to engage with their entertainment. That's what, you know, fan art and fan fiction and, and all the social media kind of discussion around, you know, storytelling and properties and pop culture. That's what that is. It's an engagement. Mm -hmm. They want to be engaged with it rather than just be passively entertained. Right. And so, I think it's 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 part of that broader trend, yeah. I mean, I I, I mean, I'll, I'm, I I wanted to draw Spider Man, you know, I wanted to right. write stories of all these characters that I've loved. Why wouldn't I want to go do that? So right. Well, and I think I think it's something too where you know there's a certain amount there's a collector mentality where you're like I love a particular character, and then yeah. there's also a mentality where you shift over and you basically go, oh, I like the character when these people are writing or drawing it. Like mm-hmm. those are the specific ones that I want. Wait. I'll read anything that person writes. I'll read anything that person draws. Now you become a fan of the creator. When you see that little credit box and all of a sudden it becomes real to you and you're like, no, no, I prefer those ones. Like I don't just want, you know, uh, an average issue of of X-Men. I like it when Paul Smith drew the X-Men. I like it when, you know, whatever, Mark Silvestri or Jim Lee or whoever, you know, that kind of thing. Or I like it. Yeah. Any of these. Right. Right. Jim, big Jim. That's right. Uh, any of these, you know, kind of characters or, or, or creators like the specifics, you know, there were certain issues that stood out to me and I didn't know until years after I was enamored with those issues that it was a specific artist. And then mm-hmm. I became kind of fell deep into the fandom for those particular creators, whether it's, you know, Arthur Adams or, or Michael mm-hmm. Golden or whatever, Tom McFarlane or any of that kind of stuff. You just yeah. become very and in a modern sense you know i'll hunt down anything that becky clunan draws right like right. because it's oh, yeah, right? yeah you know stuff like that like those are the kinds of things that oh that creator's involved you've got my attention let's yeah. go let's get it yeah it was it was an interesting thing when i went my first year in art school i mean i mean i have to say like the first three days of, of being in art school i was walking through the dorm um floor and there were these guys sitting in like the the corner. So there was kind of an octagon shape, bigger right. so everyone could sit around. And they were sitting there and they were all had all comics and they were all like talking about them. Like, oh, these are my people, you know? So right. I, I'm talking to them and they were going through the Marvel universe things and they would hold them up and they would go, oh, Ron Friends. And they oh, were man. able to... They were, they Those are totally people. my people too. And they so, were naming yeah. the, all the artists like right yeah, off the top of the head yeah. looking at what? And I'm like- My brother and I were obsessed with the oh. official handbooks of the Marvel Universe. I've literally got them right here on the shelf behind me. Yeah uh the the 80s collections of them i love those to bits we because you know at the time back issues were you know for a kid in the 80s they were crazy expensive you'd never be able to get those original stories and Mm -hmm. they didn't have the kind of trade paperback programs that they have now you might track down a reprint of spider-man's origin or if you're reading marvel tales you'd get some of those early issues but for the most part the only way you could kind of experience those stories was through characters telling you about their old adventures with the little asterisks and it would say back in whatever issue the official handbook of the marvel universe or you're like yes or right the official handbook of the marvel universe has got it laid out like an encyclopedia and because it does it smooths out all the weird edges you know instead of it being whatever 20 different writers and all their weird ass ideas on the page it makes it sound like it's a cohesive story that was being told and so in my head it was a cohesive story that was being told it was a very organized and codified kind of thing and so you know one of the things that sort of changes when you start working in the marvel universe and you realize 
you can just create stuff and it gets heaped on, you know, you just added a new brick to the house of ideas or whatever. And, and it just gets thrown in the pile with all the other crazy stuff. And if few other writers like it, they might take it and tinker with it and, and mess around. And it's not as well organized or as codified or as perfect as it was in your mind when you were a kid, but that's what makes it really fun is yeah. your ability to, you know, to, to, grab hold of it and just sort of add little pieces and make it a little bit of yours and a little bit of someone else's, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, and it was, and I found it to be like this huge, you know, wealth of like idea generation, like you could, cause you could go through it and you go, wait a minute. I remember reading about the so-and-so character and they too had this connection. And then you right. could like do some research and go like, Hey, you know, you could come up with a story that kind of combined this, that, and everything. Absolutely. And, I love taking those little funky threads from disparate parts of the Marvel universe and just sort of tying them together or making them more, uh, you know, interesting or, or cross pollinating them. It's one of the most fun parts about, about doing these, you know, stories. It's been a joy. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a huge thing. So what, so, I mean, you obviously are, are, are of the same sort of cloth as I in that respect. Right. So where were you, like, where were your earliest like connections to, Comic comics like you can remember i mean my brother my older brother is like my kind of proto all my uh, nerd stuff yeah, right so he was into superhero comics he was into fantasy he was more into sci-fi books than i was i was more into the sword and sorcery for sure and then we both fell in hard for dungeons and dragons so like yeah. all those things we were pretty lockstep on and i was very much like obsessed with the same kinds of things he was obsessed with for the most part it wasn't until kind of I'm in elementary school and he's going into high school that we get a little bit more kind of individual taste on those things. But even, and so what we would do is we'd sort of like split the Marvel universe in twain. We'd try and get, you know, as many books as we could a month so that we could keep track of stuff. Sure. So I loved collecting Spider-Man. I loved the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. And my brother collected all the X-Men and all the related stuff around there. We'd sort of take turns grabbing Hulk issues or, you know, uh, um, Daredevil now and again, if a cover grabbed us or a particular storyline was really compelling, we try and grab as many anniversary issues as we could because they had big fancy covers and we're like, well, those are important, yeah. you know, or whatever else, right? So we were just buying up as much as we could and then grabbing other stuff from flea markets or used bookstores or or things like that. And so we just read up a storm uh, as much as possible. What was so exciting about it was, because you're getting dropped right in the middle of it. I'm start reading Amazing Spider-Man in sort of the, you know, early, mid 200s issue, 200s. And so I'm buying backwards because the back issues are relatively cheap unless they're special issues. And I'm buying forwards at the same time. So I'm just slowly kind of enriching myself on mm -hmm. crazy Spider-Man history and stuff like that. And then doing that with other characters as well, trying to grab really cool issues of the Fantastic Four or trying to grab really cool issues of the Avengers and, and fill in those little knowledge gaps as much as I can or reading up on the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and then being like, that storyline sounds awesome. And right. just, you know, going back and trying to hunt them down for prices that wouldn't, you know, bankrupt little kid me or whatever. I liked uh, Marvel Team Up and Marvel 2-in-1 a lot because every issue was a different you know, team up story. And so you got to see all these different characters from across the Marvel universe, really weird ones. And you'd just be like, this is awesome. I don't know who this character is, but they seem super badass. And now I'm a fan of them as well, you know, just sort of falling through all these different kind of eclectic parts of the Marvel universe. That's, yeah. that's where you meet Wood God. 
I mean, right? All the weirdest of the characters, whatever, you know. I distinctly remember there was a, a storyline that now I think it's collected as Project Pegasus. And it was like all these funky, strange characters, you know. It's like Hal Foster, the giant man. You've got um the the um I forget what they were they were in calls, like uh, a bunch of these uh Amazonian women that were like running around smashing stuff. I thought they were super cool. Um, there were also the cosmic cube and yeah. the man thing and all that stuff. I was just like th this part of the Marvel universe, the weird stuff, like the, the supernatural stuff and the stuff that's just off the beaten path. That was the stuff that really grabbed me, you know, death lock and all that kind of stuff. Those were, oh, cool. yeah. 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 I mean, like, yeah, I mean, well, that, I mean, that was the thing, like the, the seventies era, like I, I, I said the uh, recently is that the seventies era of Marvel was like the grindhouse movie era. Yes. Yes, it was just the weirdest stuff, and and you know, yeah, the the but fun, like always fun, yeah. always interesting, always visual, you know, and 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 something neat about it. It was interesting. This was years ago. I ended up just um, I was set up at Fan Expo Canada next to John Byrne, and he hadn't oh. done that many conventions in years. And of course, everyone's bringing him all these seminal issues of of X Men to sign and all this stuff. And I didn't want to fanboy out hard. We, we, you know, we had little conversations over the weekend and I realized on the last day, if I didn't get something signed, I was going to kick myself. Right. So I didn't bring Man of Steel. I didn't bring any of the, the big seminal stuff. I brought like a few issues of Marvel two and one and a couple issues of Fantastic Four that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And he liked that. He liked that. These were just like these kooky issues, like just strange, you know, issues of of uh you know the marvel two and one stuff yeah right he, i think i think but one of my earlier ones with him was the he did i think he did like a hulk story in the marvel oh yeah 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 and like i remember getting that um i mean john probably did almost runs on almost every major character right like he oh, did a cap run he did well, ff he did x-men i still think his cap run is one of the best yeah it's amazing right yeah. it's just brilliant stuff and the, so consistent you know that's what's so great about it like is that became kind of the marvel look to me yeah is he still alpha john what's that i don't like, know because he doesn't do a lot of conventions and stuff i don't think he's, he's john Ruder jr isn't john he's jr jr yeah 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 he's he's uh john jr yeah totally yeah i actually i now that you mention it i am not sure who would be alpha john off the top of my head i, I don't a, know that's a good yeah question. <laughs> you know we should start we should start a website of the uh, you know of, of comic right we got to codify this and make yeah. sure that the fans yeah, we know got, like, we got so you can whole... sound like you know yeah yeah, yeah totally right. <laughs> you know it's funny that you know it's funny if marvel could make money off of back issues they would have done, you know, a uh, a more more sort of extensive version of the of the uh, universe because then you they would have had like all the footnotes. Where I mean, they do make money off the archives when they're doing the trade paperback programs right, when they're doing the they archives. So like, oh no, and that's what was so crazy about it. There were only a handful of trade paperbacks. Like there was a long shot trade paperback. Oh, dude, that there was, was like Death of the Phoenix trade paperback. Like uh -huh. these weird ones that they would, you know, this specific storyline you could get. You could get Craven's Last Hunt as a collection. Yeah. That was like one of the only ones you could get. Yeah. That nice airbrushed cover. Yeah, that's cool. right. That's yeah. right. No, cool it, was, it was interesting yeah well that the, that long shot one which was done i think in the late late 80s but that yeah. was like that was like arthur doing a painting and it was so crazy You're just yeah like, yeah like you were so used to his you know his line art stuff and that crazy yeah. detail on it yeah it's so great it was very very cool piece that he was he was a real sort of like 
sort of change up like that mid eighties change up. It's like, Whoa, what's going on here? Like it was. A, yeah. Like, and it, one, it was also artists no longer trying to do the house style. It was mm -hmm. artists really, really kind of doing their own thing. I think yeah. guys like Michael Golden kind of pioneered that element of it. Whereas like, don't try, you know, obviously you Jack Kirby and your Steve Ditko, they can't kind of hide who they are, but there were a lot of these sort of journeyman artists who were just sort of, you know, mid list doing their thing and yeah. you could recognize their stuff but they weren't necessarily like blowing it out. You know what I mean? And then it was like, oh no, style is kind of, kind of everything, you it's, know? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it ain't just for Bill Sinkovich, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 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 And <clears throat> I think the thing was, that's what happened. It was like, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the Arthur's and then the Todd's, you know, they were, they saw Michael and they were like, oh, that's, that's different. And I really like this. Yeah. I love yeah. John Byrne, but I yep. like this. And it just blew up at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So, that you so I mean, like, so you're totally into it, but like, so what? It, like, what? What do? What do comics? Like, how do you frame them in your your sort of experience? I mean, like, we've already admitted that we were hiding, you know, our our right. Our nerd <laughs> I couldn't really hide the comic book fandom. Like, I was pretty into it, but it's weird because I never attended comic conventions okay. or things like that. I grew up outside of Toronto, little uh, city called Oshawa. We had three comic book stores by in the boom of comics, so mm -hmm. we had a lot of choice, which was great. Um, you know, and and like everyone, nineteen eighty nine, you go see the Batman movie, so you're obsessed with Batman for a while, and you know, like stuff like that. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on that kind of indie wave, mm -hmm. and then my brother actually he went off to university, and a bunch of these kind of um, programming and engineering students had come to University of Waterloo from Japan. And they brought a bunch of their comics and animation with them. Oh, wow. Okay. And so my brother rode the early kind of wave of, of anime fandom. And I kind of fell into that with anime and manga where I was like, oh, there are comics about everything. Like, yeah. and, I, and I knew there were indie books, you know, where you yeah. could read slice of life stuff or biographies or things like that. But for whatever reason, the North American ones didn't grab me, but the Japanese ones did. So all of a sudden it was like historical comics and, and romantic comedies and uh, you know, all sorts of different genres that I just hadn't seen in comics before or in animation before really, really kind of blew my mind. And so I was, yeah, caught up in that sort of wave uh, as it was emerging, like, you know, fan subtitled, uh, stuff from people taking Japanese laser discs and copying it through, uh, you know, a, a really old crappy computer, adding subtitles and then outputting it onto VHS and then wow. trading these tapes with other clubs. So this club is going to, you know, they're going to subtitle Record of Lotus War, which is like this fantasy oh, yeah. epic. Sure. And then these other guys are going to uh, fan subtitle Bubblegum Crisis, this, you know, cyberpunky, you know, sci-fi series, and then we'll trade. And so if, if your club does one series, you end up getting five because you've traded with all these other clubs in different places. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. It was pretty wild. So what, I mean, what, what are you what are we talking about? Is it, let's 90 ish. Around? Yeah. We're talking, yeah. 1990, 1991 yeah. kind of era there. Yeah. And so, you know, Akira is blowing people's minds, but it, but only it's like, you've heard of it, but it hasn't been released in theaters anywhere or anything. So you're right. just like hearing about it and someone's got a bootleg copy and you're watching it with no subtitles and you're just like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And then, um, you know, Epic ended up like Marvel's Epic imprint ended up doing Akira totally in english forever but they did it 
Yeah, they did it, and we collected those as well because our yeah. minds were so blown from the, from Marie, the movie. Marie Chavins, um, she she was the one who was finally they handed to her like, you have to finish this thing. It's oh like, my god! It just took her forever to get. You know, well, it also I think it was Olaf was coloring it, and he was doing Spawn and all these other things as those blew up. So I think that they couldn't afford to pay him like Todd was, right? So I think right. that was the other thing. And Otomo agreed to doing color, but only if Olaf colored it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, and, you know, Otomo had had very sort of strong, you know. Sure. You know, he, he, his needs, his needs. Were yeah, strong. of course, right? Well, you've got, you know, you've you've got the equivalent, whatever, the the manga equivalent of, of Watchmen or Sin yeah. City or something on that level. Yep. You know, you you can make decisions about how you want that to be released and in yeah. what format, and then that's how that stuff goes, man. When you've got that kind of you know uh, oh. cultural footprint, totally. Yeah. yeah, no, totally. Yeah, we I was in, I was in art school in the late '80s in New York City, so nice. like we got we got a hold of you know of all that stuff real quick. It was just yeah. It was it was a wave. It was really exciting stuff. And so my influences are really all over the map. It's like superhero stuff and then early Vertigo comics and then mm. manga and indie stuff. Like it's just sort of a little bit of everything. And then when I'm in college, um, you know, the internet's finally starting to come into its own. But even then, like my first year of college, you didn't have to have an email address. Like, right. Okay. It wasn't yeah. until my second year of college where we all got assigned email addresses and you'd check your email like once a week and it would just be emails from other people you knew who are like, I have email now. <laughs> and that was it. Like, you email. Know, it's a little hard to describe to people. You're like, yeah. you're going to the internet and, you know, the first websites are just people mucking around and just trying to make things. And, oh, and, sure. and these big discussions about these you know, entertainment companies like early X-Files fandom where they weren't sure they wanted to let fan pages use the logo because they didn't want people to think that these sites were official or something. Right. Yeah. Because everything looked like crap. So if yours had even a whiff of professionalism, it was as good or better than, you know, what the actual companies were putting online. Right. So still kind of the same when it comes to the, you know, to the internet, like there, there's very few people have, you know, the leg up in that in that realm. oh sure but it, it was a fascinating time you know these discussions oh, yeah. about well who's even using this stuff anyways and who's right. looking at it and what's it matter you know well, this we, kind of we stuff we didn't know what we were doing like, no, it, you know no. i mean like most of us didn't know what we were doing we were sure. just like oh this is something oh i found a chat board and they're talking yep. about something i'm interested yeah and talk. and that was the thing you know the first time i used the internet was going to visit my brother at the university of waterloo and he takes me into this computer lab takes him like 15 minutes to log on to the this is pre you know World Wide web so this is like just chat room bbs stuff and he's showing me like recreation.arts.anime and it's just like people posting topics and i'm wow. just like oh wow and so i thought it was really neat and so because I didn't have internet at my high school, my brother would literally, if there was a really cool discussion, <laughs> he would print some of them out and he would like bring them home for me to read. Totally. And so I'm like reading BBS feeds, you know, like just bizarre, bizarre stuff in the nascent internet, you know. Right. And that's on the on the impact, the impact printer. So just. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. With the, got to tear the little holes off the sides and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. it's well, that, and I would read some of the early manga that way. They, people would post up translation scripts. Oh, and really? so you'd get an original Japanese manga and it would say page one, panel one. Here's the dialogue, you know, sound effect. Here's the thing. And so I'd have the Japanese manga in my hand. And I'd be looking at it and then I'd look at the printout 
And then I go, oh, okay. Oh, that's funny because that guy's name is a pun for bread. All right, cool, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and and you just read and read and read and read. And it was like you you had this weird underground language of this whole other comic, you know, kind right. of scene that you were diving into. And even if someone was a comic fan, they couldn't read this stuff, but I could, you know, it was just like this fascinating oh, thing. Totally. So yeah. what what was your, I mean, what are your earliest kind of ideas of sort of creating stuff because like i mean like beyond sure yeah yeah you're a fan for all these years but yeah. i never thought i could i could make comics because i knew i don't know what it was like this weird feeling of well there's only what three four people on the credits of a comic and yeah. it's not going to be me like there's just no friggin' way and so right. and and i've also got this weird idea that you know, in order to work for Marvel, you've either got to be in New York City right. and go up to the office or you've got to be brilliant and British. And I'm like, well, I'm neither of those things. Well, so Canadian. you're like, fifth, you know, you're yeah. like there. I, but I'd never heard about Canadian comic book creators, you know, yeah. let alone ones that were breaking in. That's why Todd McFarlane was so mind blowing because I found out he was from Calgary, Alberta. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> He, right. he draws Spider-Man and he lives in Calgary. What the oh, hell? Burn, like, man. You guys at burn. You yeah, know. but Byrne never bragged he was a Canadian. He never bragged he was a Canadian. That was not yeah. like a big part of his identity. And I wasn't reading like, you know, the comics journal and that stuff yeah. at that age. So I wouldn't know like the deep backstory. And you can't just look up a Wikipedia thing, right? Like, so John Byrne is, he's American as apple pie. I don't know. Like, I, I have no idea until way later, you know. <clears throat> um, and so for me, it's like creating comics didn't even, wasn't even on my radar as a possibility. But animation, I was super obsessed with as well. I loved, you know, everything from Looney Tunes and Saturday morning cartoons and the Batman animated series and anime, obviously, all that stuff. And I saw the sheer number of credits of human beings flying by on the, the credit roll. And I, I'm like, that's a realistic dream. I can be one of those, you know, names going up the thing, right? And on top of that, I had seen this documentary about this animation school that was in just outside Toronto called Sheridan and they had graduates who had gone on to work at Disney and Warner Brothers and all these different studios. Some of them, uh, there were some guys there who were doing 3D animation. Um, one of the big pioneers who did like the special effects on Terminator 2, he was a Canadian guy who went to that school. And there were a bunch of these key animators who were working for Disney who were from that school. And I was like, okay, well, this is a place I can go and this is a thing that I can do that I love and an art form that I really want to learn and I want to do something creative and I draw, you know, yeah. this is something I'll dig into. And so I went to school, I applied at a high school, didn't get in, went to for a year of film. Um, but during that year of film, I was learning about editing and cinematography and photography and all this other stuff. I wasn't drawing. So, of course, I wasn't going to get in again. I was an idiot. I just spent a whole year working on other stuff. And then I was like, oh, crap, I got to get a portfolio together uh, and sent, you know, marginally better stuff than the year before. Didn't get in again. Okay. Then I was like, OK, do I want to do animation? Like, am I serious? Because I totally just messed around for a year and yeah. I love film. But and my parents were sort of like, you're good at the film thing, like just stick with it. And I was like, no, if I don't do animation, I'm going to regret it. So I took an art intensive program to sort of get my skills up. And then on my third try, and I told my parents, I was like, you know, third strike, if I don't get in, I won't do it. Right. I got in and then I started, okay. I, I, so I did classical animation, like Disney style animation and midway through the, my program, 
we saw the huge wave of computer animation. Like Toy Story came out while I was in school. Oh, heartbreaking, huh? Yeah, we all looked at each other and went, oh, crap. We are literally dinosaurs. What are we doing? You're, you're walking along with, you know, pulling, you know, and then yeah. some guy goes by with a cart, you know? Yeah. Like, and we're just like, oh, oh no, oh, no. Yeah. And so I was terrified. I was really, really worried I wasn't going to be able to uh, make a living at this, you know, yeah. um, not knowing that that 2D would survive in all sorts of different ways and future technologies. So out of second year in animation school, I went off to a friend of mine. He tried to start his own studio. So I did that for a little while. And then I jumped around to a few other studios doing TV animation stuff, just like yeah. real kind of slam it out thing. And, you know, that early in your career, you have no, unless you're absolutely brilliant artist, there's no way you're going to jump to the top of the pack where you're designing the main characters or you're coming up with stories or any of that stuff, let alone directing or any of that kind of thing. So I, I could see like, this is many years away that I'm going to have any influence whatsoever on what I'm working on, like I'm just a cog in the machine and I'm learning a lot and I'm drawing a lot and I'm enjoying the camaraderie of the studio and all that stuff. But I, I want to tell stories. Like I don't just want to, you know, passively wait for this stuff to happen or, or only be executing on other people's visions. Yeah. And one of the things I discovered once I had my own computer and my own internet and stuff at home <clears throat> web comics were this thing that I had discovered. People were posting all these, most of them were like newspaper style strips yeah, with a gag cool. every day. Yeah. You know, like, but yeah, the earliest Penny Arcade and, and PVP and all this kind of stuff. And I, it was amazing to me because I realized these people were just doing it completely independently. They didn't have publishers. They didn't have any sort of formal system. They just made stuff because they wanted to make it. And then they would post it up when they finished one maybe they had a slight archive so that they could keep, you know, uh, a regular schedule. And that was it. And I was like, oh, I can understand this stuff. So I figured out basic HTML and I started making my own comic in the evenings. So I did about, I think I did about 10 or 12 pages as a, a buffer. And then I started posting three pages a week. And this is 2001. Okay. So I'm posting like uh, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I'm posting a thing. And mine was a horizontal format, so it fit the monitor, but it wasn't a, a gag-driven strip. It was like a dramatic story. Okay. And so you would get one new page every, you know, every uh, couple days. And <clears throat> I was teaching myself how to use Photoshop because we hadn't been taught very much of that in school. Mm -hmm. I was figuring out HTML. I was posting up stuff and 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 using templates and making my own website and and getting that stuff out there and slowly but surely kind of you know people were reading it i th i thought just posting it up would my friends and family could see it and that would motivate me to keep doing it because there was right. that sense of people are, and then actual like strangers started reading it and you start getting you know fan mail not like a ton but like you're getting messages from people and they're reading it and they're enjoying it and they're sharing it with people and you suddenly realize, oh, there's this very organic kind of thing happening here. And so I started it in September. And then December, I'm taking a break for Christmas and New Year's. And I post this message on the front that's like, here's the new page. I'm going to take two weeks off for the holidays. Please come back. I promise I will update in the new year. And I know it's not always perfect, but you know, I do these in the evenings after my day job. And I'm just trying to get this stuff out there. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm just doing the best. I can. Like It was just this total classic artist kind of self 
you know, just beating myself with, uh, just doing the best I can. And I got a an email out of the blue from Scott McLeod. Oh, okay. And Scott McLeod sent me a message and basically said, you're doing great. It's, you know, we're, we're all enjoying it here. Just keep it up. Uh, and don't be so hard on yourself. I was just like, oh my God, the understanding comics guy just emailed me. And so I emailed him right back. I'm so sorry, Mr. McLeod. I'm doing the best I can. Like it was like just the same kind of message. Cut, paste. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he just emailed me back like minutes later. And he was like, don't call me Mr. McLeod. My name's Scott. Here's my yeah. phone number. Give me a call. And I was like, what the hell? And so I phoned him and we had this amazing conversation where he was like, you know, I'm seeing all this amazing content online. And I feel like there's a whole burgeoning kind of other industry that's happening in web comics, but practically like almost everyone's doing humor strips or they're doing pop culture stuff. And you're just telling a story and right. posting a new page every couple of days. He's like, there's not very many people doing dramatic stories or doing like essentially an online graphic novel. Like he's like, you have an ending. I was yep. like, yeah, I have an ending. He goes, other people are just doing it like Garfield. Like they're doing right. their own kind of thing. Yeah. And he goes, you know, I think that's really cool. You should be part of this conversation. And I'm like, what conversation? He's like, this conversation, you know, there's a community that's sort of forming. There's people talking and there's people, you know, uh, uh, putting this stuff into in front of other people. And he goes, you should come to San Diego Comic-Con. And I was like, there is no way I can go to San Diego Comic-Con from multiple levels. For, like, I've still got student debt, you know, up to my eyeballs. Um, I'm not going to, I have no, I'm not a professional. I can't get a badge. I have nowhere to stay and I, I can't afford a flight. You know what I mean? And Scott was just, like, oh, okay. You know, and so he started introducing me to all sorts of people. Um, and, and a discussion started up from there. And all of a sudden it was like, there were people in San Diego who were making web comics and they're like, well, you can just crash on our floor. No big deal. I don't, I've never even met these people and they're yeah. offering me somewhere to stay. And then Scott, I mean, San Diego was much smaller than it is now. He just contacted Comic-Con and said, yeah. oh, this guy's a working professional. And yeah. so they accredited me. So I had a pro badge and then I just needed a ticket. <clears throat> and so I still, there was no way I could afford a ticket for the flight. And I told my older brother, I was just like, Joe, you know, this is insane. The understanding comics guy and I are talking and he was just like, what? This is amazing. It's so cool. You've got to go. And I was like, I can't, I can't afford to go. Right. And so I called up my dad and my dad is not nerdy at all. Doesn't understand any of this stuff. Never has really. And he just says, I know you don't know any of the stuff Jim does and you're terrified that, you know, he's going to be a starving artist or whatever. But uh, if he doesn't, take advantage of this opportunity he will regret it for the rest of his life and so my dad just said okay and put a plane ticket on his credit card wow and so i was flying to california to meet people i'd never met someone picking me up from the airport who i didn't know what they looked like they had to send me a photo real grainy <laughs> photo over old garbage email and i was crashing at people's houses and and hanging out with a bunch of comic book people who i'd some of them i'd talk to over email and that was about it you know well, what was your, I mean, like, so, I mean, it, which is all, that's all really freaking amazing. And like, right. and I feel like we all, if we can dig in, we all have these kind of amazing sort of like moments where people are like super beneficial, like in yeah, transformative in yeah. ways that you never could have imagined. Yeah. And so yeah. like, how do you, but like, how do you frame it? Like, okay, here I am, I'm going off the, going off to San Diego, which you clearly right. know what San Diego was. Cause everyone yeah, knows yeah, what yeah. it is. And 
you go, you get there and you're, you're sort of in this wave of kindness, you know, right. Claudine has handed you a, a pass and you're now right. like part of the in and yay, but like doing a thing. But what do you, how do you, how do you frame the moment for yourself when you're there? And how do you say like, how do I fit into this? Like, what is that? What is that for you? I think it was just this idea of, <clears throat> oh, all of these people are very much like me in that broader sense of they're just really excited about art and storytelling. They don't have it all figured out. Even, even some of the most, you know, notable people in the industry, they were very warm and they were very inviting and they were very excited and just like making stuff that they wanted to make. And yeah. I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And as much as I love animation, even the crappiest piece of animation is either going to require tons of people or a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And it's like a comic is very immediate in that sense of, I could just make this thing. I could just yeah. collaborate either on my own or work with a handful of people and we could do it. You know what I mean? And so suddenly that felt a lot more like I could get my hands around it and, well, and so, it wasn't as scary as I thought it was, you know? And did that, I mean, so how did that like affect your point of view towards, you know, what you were, your, your career was as an right. <clears throat> well, what I realized was, very quickly, my head kind of changed in the sense of saying, look, I got into animation for the same reasons I got into comics. I got into all this stuff because I want to tell stories because I love storytelling, right? And I wanted to get into the story department on animation. I wanted right. to create films, whether it was live action or animated, you know, I took film because I wanted to tell stories because I wanted to make things, right? And so what is the shortest path to that what is the best way or what is the most what are these opportunities that are kind of popping up in front of me and all of a sudden it was like well with with comics i can do this i can make this i can make this happen yeah. you know what i mean and so that was suddenly very immediate and yet <clears throat> when i finished that first online graphic novel it was called the makeshift miracle and i did about 180 pages to finish the story so it took me i don't know about two years maybe a year and a half um I should have just rolled right over and done another thing, mm -hmm. but I had this weird kind of paralysis where when I was doing it and no one was paying attention and I was just doing it for myself or I thought maybe my friends and family. And then once I started it, it was already happening. So I had to keep doing it. Right. But when I broke that chain of doing, I kept thinking, well, the second one's got to be like, I could, the first one warts and all I could figure it out as I was going and no one was going to expect anything from me because well, he just built it himself. And then right. it was this weird thing of, even though I didn't have a huge audience, there was still this sense of, well, the second one, I'm not an amateur anymore. Like I've gone to Comic-Con and I've done all this stuff and I met all these There's people. expectations now. Yeah, I've got to make this amazing thing. I've got to make this right. artistic thing. And so all of a sudden I found myself in a rut where I couldn't make it anymore, where I was just like, well, I need to, I need more experience. I need better training. I need more time. And mm -hmm. I could give myself a hundred excuses for not why I shouldn't be doing it right now. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah and, totally. and so I took all sorts of other animation jobs and then I found myself um, back in Toronto. And all of a sudden I was, um, I was going to go back to school for 3d animation, but an opportunity popped up with a friend of mine where I started working at an art studio called Udon they were doing uh, commercial art and illustration and design work and comics. And I started off there literally doing coloring 
on comic book stuff. Hilariously, I colored a bunch of the Dark Horse reprints for Conan the Barbarian that they were doing. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was one of my, in theory, one of my first credited published That's things hilarious. is coloring. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then I started doing a bunch of other illustration at the Udon okay. studio. And then I'm, I'm very fastidious and organized. So I was helping the studio organize a bunch of projects. And the next thing I knew I was project managing on a bunch of these freelance gigs that we were doing. So I was sort of finding the right artist for the gig or I was helping plug in stuff and I wasn't writing. All of a sudden it was like the animation job all over again. I was executing on other people's visions. I was doing other people's stuff, but mm -hmm. the money was really good. And I was, I was tangentially, connected to all these things I love. We were doing artwork for video games. We were doing artwork for animation, artwork for comics, artwork for tabletop role-playing games. And so I was like, well, I can't really be mad. This is all the stuff I grew up on and I'm getting paid to do it. And so I did, and I really, really enjoyed it for a while. But in the back of my mind, there's this little kind of gnawing sensation of tell a story. Why aren't you telling stories? You yeah. know what I mean? Why aren't you making stuff? Like you're executing on everyone else's visions and you're doing a really good job and you're getting the attaboys and yeah. you're making money and you're paying off your debt and you're going to conventions. But I would go to conventions and I would be the guy looking at portfolios, hiring artists, or I would, you know, with the head of the studio, or I would be going to these corporate dinners and we'd be talking about corporate things instead of creative things. And it's like, I'm playing into this world, but man, I'm really not enjoying parts of this. You know what I mean? Yeah, or across the aisle, like, yeah. oh, wistfully. At the, at I'm the, the editor yeah. on these other books, yeah. watching other people execute on things yep. and being like, trying not to be that guy who's saying, well, I could do it better. Yeah. But kind of thinking that at the same time, like this story's good, but I mean, it's not, I mean, it's fine, it's you know, like. Yeah. So yeah. every so often the studio would get a project where the client would be like, oh, we need you guys to do the story and the art. And I would always jump in and do the story. I would always write the thing. And the clients were like, you know, surprised. Like, oh, this is this is pretty great. Like, the, you know, they're expecting like baseline commercial thing. And I'm throwing down tons of ideas for them or whatever. Totally. And even my boss at the studio is like, oh, you really love this. I was like, yeah, I want to I want to write. I want to collaborate. I want to make things, you know. And um, so I did that for years and I learned a ton. And in retrospect, it's all helped my career in massive, incredible ways because I learned what everyone else does in the pipeline at different points of time. I was illustrating, I was coloring, I was editing, I was doing graphic design, I was doing pre-press, I was doing marketing, I was doing conventions, like every role that you need in publishing in comics, I had done at some point in time. So whenever we worked with a client or worked with an artist or a creator, I knew what their job was and I knew how to, how to communicate well with them. And that has paid dividends to my writing career in incredible ways, but, but I was executing on other people's stuff. Yeah. And so 2008, I think it is, I'm doing this for like five, six years. I haven't done a story since makeshift miracle wrapped up in 2003 so okay. like three years of just paying down debts and i'm in the business but i'm not where i want sure. to be in the business <clears throat> and and but you can't complain because how many other people would love to do anything there's this a business right and so right. you're like you've got this feeling in the back of your mind like don't don't bitch like don't be a whiner 
Yeah. You're involved in all this stuff. You're traveling to these conventions, you know, but every so often we, I'd be at the table and the artists we were working with would have lineups and there would be people that would come by the table and say, Oh, when's so-and-so going to be there. And, and you're like, Oh, later on, they're like, cool. Thanks, man. And you're just like, I'm, I'm their boss. You know, like <laughs> I make sure they get paid, but no one cares about you. No one no. cares about, I'm, you know, I'm the hardworking, you know, backstage manager. Like people care about what they, they care about. That's sure. the thing. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's the adage of the, of the nineties with the comic industry with Neil. Right. Um, and you know, every, like all these young women will come in and go, hey, is the latest issue salmon in? And they right. would go, no. And they go, okay, thanks. And they would leave. And like the right. guy, the, the store was like, oh, but, but we have all these, you know, amazing other books. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's like, hey. uh, one of the artists I was working with, he got an offer to do a short story for an image anthology called pop gun. So this artist, uh, Chris yeah. Stevens, I'd worked with him. He was phenomenal. And, uh, he's like, he wasn't signed to any exclusive with us, but I, he was, I was giving him work constantly. Yeah. So he contacts me and he basically said, Hey, is it okay if I do this? I was like, yeah, man, do it. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. He's like, cool, cool. And then like a couple of days later, he contacts me again. And he goes, I thought they were going to like, give me a script to draw. They said, I can do whatever I want. I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. And he goes, I don't know what to do. I was like, what? And so we just chatted on the phone and I said, well, what genre do you want to do? And he's like, oh, sword and sorcery. I'm like, oh, my favorite. <laughs> and so we just chatted for, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes and came up with a story and we were laughing about it. And he's like, cool, I'm going to go do that, man. I'll give you a special thanks. I was like, all right, take it easy. Oh, and, yeah. and he hangs up the phone and all I'm thinking is, God, I'd love to write that. Right. And then like a day later, he contacts me and he goes, I tried to write it down, but it was way funnier when you said it on the phone. Do you just want to write it? And I was like, yes, I do. Oh, wow. And so I did this, this 10 page story that we did in Pop Gun volume two called Two Copper Pieces. And it was about these mercenary jerk kind of uh, uh, fantasy guys. And it was very much in the mold of like when you used to play D&D when I was a kid and you would just bulldoze through the story that the dungeon master wanted you to do and you oh, do cool. your own dumb shit because that was way funnier. Yep. And, um, it made me laugh and it made Chris laugh and we made the story and uh, awesome. Felt so good. It was years since I'd written something and executed on it with someone like this and being able to just make my own thing. Right. And we had an absolute blast. And so immediately they started working on Pop Gun Volume 3 and the editor's like, we would love to have you guys do another one. And I contacted Chris and I said, do you want to do another one? And he's like, I don't know, man. I don't think I have time. I can't do 10 more pages. I said, we could do it in five pages. He's like, can we do it in three? I was like, we can do it in three. So I wrote like a three page story and he did it and it worked out really well. And then Eric Larson had taken over as editor, uh, publisher at image. Mm -hmm. uh, and he contacted us out of the blue and basically said, this is one of my favorite stories in, in the book. You guys should make this a regular series. Oh. And I was like, Oh, we could make, we could make a creator own comic. Like we can yeah. make our own comic. <clears throat> and, um, Chris was like, Chris had tons of money problems, all sorts of things like that. And he was just like, I don't, dude, I can't do a monthly book. And I was like, no, but this is our chance to right. do a thing. And really, I was like, this is my chance, my chance sure, yeah. to break, you know, out of this mold of just building other people's stuff. And slowly but surely got him hyped up and we started working on this book. And, and Chris was super busy and had, you know, 
an image book as a thing is amazing if it's a big hit, but yeah. you have to dedicate months and months of time without any promise of money on the back end mm. in terms of how much, how well it's going to do. <clears throat> and it became very clear that we weren't going to be able to execute on this thing. We weren't going to be able to finish it. We weren't going to be able to do it. Chris drew like 11 pages and I think it took him like six months. And I was just like, Oh my okay. God, we're yeah. never going to be able to do this thing. And so I threw the script in a drawer and I was like, well, you know, there goes that. Yeah. But artists were applying to the Udon studio all the time. And because I had taught at an art school and then I was teaching at that point at an art school here in Toronto that I still teach at this college called Seneca here in Toronto, I was constantly doing portfolio reviews and this portfolio came in from this young kid in New York and he really wanted to work for Udon and his art was great. And I, you know, it was the kind of thing where you just go, look, you just need to leave a little bit more room for word balloons mm -hmm. and your, your storytelling's good. Your characters are solid, all that stuff. We're not currently hiring at the studio, but you're, you're doing pro quality stuff. And he's like, oh, well, the reason why there's not enough room for word balloons is because I don't have a script. I'm just kind of drawing this out of my head. Yeah. And I was like, well, do you want to work from a script? He's like, great. Can you send me one of the Udon scripts? And I was like, I can't, we're not allowed to. The only script I've got is this this fantasy thing that I did. Yeah. And I sent it to him and I said, the artist drew like 11 pages. You can see what he did and you'll learn, you know, because he's a really, really good artist. Yeah. And uh, they were all pencils and the kid uh, named Ed, Edwin Huang, like a couple days later, he sends me a couple pages of inks. He's like, I hope you don't mind. I printed out those pages from that artist. and I inked them because I wanted to learn. I was like, these look amazing. And he goes, is it okay if I ink the rest just for my own practice? I said, yeah, mm -hmm. go for it. And then he got to page 11 and then he drew page 12 <laughs> and then he inked it and it looked really good. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, don't, don't make me, don't, don't, you know, I've already kind of given up on this. Like yeah. you're giving me hope kid. This is too much. I don't know if I can handle it. <clears throat> and so I waited till he had two or three pages done past 11 and I sent them to image and I said, we're back on production. Is it okay? And they were like, sounds good. When you get a finished issue, you know, we can put it on the schedule. Wow. And I was like, oh crap, we're making a book. And so I, I had to call him up and I was like, look, um, I don't know if you uh, have plans because he was still in school at the time. He was at some illustration school in New York. Okay. I don't know if you have any plans right now, but if you want, uh, you know, it would be great. And he goes, man, I was going to ask you if it would be okay if we could make this a real book. And I said, that's exactly why I called. So yes, yes, please. And so we made this comic series, Edwin and I, and the original artist, Chris, he would do covers. Okay. We got a colorist and the letterer who was doing a bunch of stuff at Udon, I got him to letter the book. And we launched this book called Skull Kickers in 2010. Yeah. And that was suddenly me as a writer making my own thing again yep. and putting it out into the world. And the, the, the transformation in, the, I'm sure to me, it felt, you know, much more immediate, but just people looking and saying, oh, you made this. Oh, you're a comic book creator again. Right. Was yeah. so intoxicatingly wonderful that I knew I couldn't stop. Like I had to make stuff and I fell back in, in all the best kind of ways. And literally since 2010, I have written over 8,000 pages of comics. Yeah. It's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But it like the weird, not even a false start, but like a start made a thing, got scared. Sure. Kind of 
kept my powder dry, but for way too long and like, gotta go, gotta go. And then finally, finally the starter gun went off and, and I that, haven't really stopped. So that thing, you know, <clears throat> I think it, it's really interesting because that, that happens more than it doesn't happen with people in this getting scared thing on the second thing. Like there's yeah. this, there in it because it's not the it's not the assignment thing you know it's not no. that it says hey here's a gig here's another gig you just do right. the gig because right. it's like, right, cool. well and there's a big chunk of my writing that is now obviously working on other people's stuff sure. but it's i'm creative in that you know mm -hmm. i'm writing it i'm coming up with the plot i'm doing the thing yeah and someone giving you a deadline is a hell of a motivator in a way that oh, it's harder sure. to get going for yourself yeah, well, it, yeah. It, it's i mean it's the same thing that you know it's it, when you said okay well these other people know that i'm doing this thing when you right. were doing your web comic mm -hmm. that was your deadline because you were trying, yes. you yes. were honoring yes. that action to these people regardless of you know compensation it was yep. just I'm going to do this thing. And, and now there's this powerful thing now where I know an artist is waiting for a script and their livelihood is dependent on me getting that script done and getting it approved by editorial and getting it in their hands. And that is this constant push. And because I worked with clients for years and I worked with artists for years, I know that pressure, what it feels like if you don't have the material you need or the schedule is crumbling because people aren't doing their jobs. So it's like this weird form of, motivation adrenaline guilt like i'm doing this i said i was going to do it i know i can do it and it forces me past that fear that used to sort of lock me in place when it was only myself that i had to you know motivate yeah <clears throat> when i uh, was talking to a, cr a creator recently an artist and we were talking about like you know the the, the, the sort of the mythological page a day kind of thing you right know? right and <clears throat> He was like, he's like, yep. Yeah. And we were discussing the fact that like, it's not just the page a day. You got to figure right. out that page in a very, sh like what's the quickest amount of time you can get that page done that right. you live with for the day. And now figure out how to do two or three of those pages in a day, because as you said, the the crumbling schedules, well, that happens. Like, I mean, I, I would say. Or just real life happens. You yeah. know, you, you've well, got yeah, other yeah. things that just take sure. you, that everything trying to take your attention away from doing the work. You yeah, know what I mean, like, and sometimes people will say to me, they go, I don't understand. You have a full-time teaching job. Like I'm a, now a tenured prof at mm -hmm. this art college. Well, it's not even an art college. It's, it's college. They've got all sorts of different courses, but the department I'm in is in art and animation, but you're a tenured prof teaching full-time and then you're writing, you know, five, six books at the same time. And it's right. like, yeah. And they're like, how does that happen? And I said, well, there's a bunch of different factors involved. First of all, I don't have any pets and I don't have any kids and I have a very patient wife. Yeah. As a, second of all, when I sit down at the computer, there's no room for me to mess around. Like yeah. in the evening, I got three hours. I got to get these pages done. I can't sit there and noodle. I got to just hunker down and go, well, if I don't get this done tonight, I'm definitely not getting the script on this week. And if I don't get this done this week, the log jam happens the guilt is will overtake me. I'll ruin everything and people will hate me for all time. Therefore tonight's getting done. <laughs> like that's, that's just what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I mean, dab, you know, dabbling into the, into the process factor, like, sure. Are, do you like, I mean, do you hop in like, 
are you a, do you do any like morning work like to anything to get the day depends started? on the project i always i mean i'm a planner right there's planners and there's pantsers sure. yeah and so i'm very much a planner like i will break down an issue however many pages it is i have a document with one to whatever the number of pages one to 20 pages on a typical marvel issue and i'm literally going scene by scene okay this scene has to happen before that scene yeah. that's where the page turn is okay that's where the big splash page is going to be i know all of that before i write the issue yeah. and even if it changes and sometimes it does you're scripting and you realize you got a better way of doing it now i'm just reordering bits rather than being like i have no idea what's coming you know what i mean and so yeah. um <clears throat> when i finally sit down to script i've got an outline of the whole arc I've got a page breakdown of each scene. I know the next three pages are this conversation between these characters. Mm -hmm. And then it almost feels like, like a role-playing game. Like I'm the oh. Avengers. Yeah, what yeah, would yeah. Captain America say? What would, you know, what would Steve Rogers do? What would Tony Stark do? What would Wanda Maximoff do? They're in the scene together. What is driving them? By the end of this page, this has got to happen. How can I make this as engaging and entertaining as possible to move through these moments? Well, it's know? that spotlight moment because like it's it, the D and D thing is a great, great example because yeah. like I, when I, when I write, like as long as I've done my job well enough to create the environment and have a solid enough you know premise of what's going on, the characters are going to make the story happen. Like, right. right. <clears throat> and you know what? So like when you're playing D and D, like, the DM has set up the whole environment. They've set yeah. the premise up. Each individual person is responsible for their character. But then that moment when the spotlight turns to you and you're holding your 20-sider, you've got it. This is it. Like you've only yeah. this is my cool off. moment. Throw it out. I think what's really interesting is like it's also what motivates me to get character voices right. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll read a book by a writer, and even when I like their writing. I feel their voice overwhelming all voices. Like right. everyone suddenly is the quip master or everyone is erudite in a way that they wouldn't be normally. And you're like, man, you don't give a damn about any of these characters' personalities. You're just sort of steamrolling the you all over this. Yeah. And for me, it's like, no, I want whatever, Clint Barton to sound like Clint Barton. And I want Natasha Romanoff to sound like Natasha Romanoff. Like I want these characters to be themselves yeah. and that you believe in them more than it being like, oh, there's the Zub all over this thing. Like, you know, yeah. ideally what 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 a Jim Zub script is, oh, it's great balance of action and, you know, bit of wry humor or there's a sense of wonderment or there's really cool big ideas that drive it. But yeah. not that my Steve Rogers sounds like my Thor sounds like my Hulk or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think that's like. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I totally, I totally agree because I mean, we have to, as a writer and I mean, as the artist, I mean, like if you strewed the characters right. and just threw a different costume on the same figure. I mean, there are some artists that do that, obviously, yeah, but, but right? But, but know, ideally you're striking some sort of a balance where it's yeah. like, you know, this is clearly that character and they still feel like themselves or the, yeah. the qualities that you're enhancing are the ones, like I love a Humberto Ramos drawing that looks like Humberto Ramos drew it. But even his different characters have got their silhouettes are different and their body types and their personalities come through in those drawings. Like, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. You know, like when you see a certain person have a different shoulder slope, a different, yeah, you know, yeah. a different slouch, you know, whatever. Absolutely. And I love seeing those characters interpreted through their line in yeah. their style. You and know that, what I mean? And the same works yeah. with writers because what you want to do is you want to go like, oh, I really want to get, you know, I want, I want this Jim's version. Right. 
of you know how does how does he make daredevil you know right, right. And, and what it what the kind of what are the qualities when i i love doing research on the stuff before i'm writing any particular character i'm rereading either my favorite stories or iconic stories of those characters and i'm writing sorry reading for writing like research is different from reading for fun i've yeah. got a little notepad beside me and i'm literally just taking down notes and those notes are people places names nicknames sometimes a line of dialogue that really catches my attention or questions that i have as i'm reading or qualities that i notice about the character that i want to reinforce to myself you for know sure what I mean? yeah, yeah and yeah. so i end up with these scratch notes of all these different characters and then i look for you know what is the through line because a lot of these characters they've gone through so many different evolutions and i sort of looking okay there are all kinds of different ways to do peter parker what is my peter parker and how many of these qualities that i think are important can i incorporate without so it's distinctive in the sense it's my filtering mm -hmm. but they're all still qualities that have been there in the work previously i'm cool. not just randomly deciding you know, brand new things. Or if I am, I have to justify them in the scope of the story that I'm building, you know? Yeah, and like, and it's like, I mean, it's not exactly the same sort of parallel, but like, it's like when we hear the, a band that we love do a cover of a song that we right. you know, you're like, wow, love hearing how they've reinterpreted sure. this, this, these same notes, you know? Yeah, yeah. They, there's just, it, there's just a different way of doing it. And uh, well, or what can you do to move that character's story forward? You know, some of the best stories in these long running, you know, superhero properties or, or pop culture characters, the ones we really remember are the stories that shake things up for them, right? Why is the death of Gwen Stacy so important? You know, mm -hmm. why is whenever Craven's Last Hunter, all these things, these, these stories that felt like they were transformative or engaging or doing something to the characters that you weren't supposed to do or that, that maybe were a bridge too far. And that's kind of why we remember them. And that's why they're so iconic and powerful. Yeah. And so then you have to think to yourself, okay, it's all well and good to have Spider-Man punch out some muggers or whatever in an alleyway. That, that's not going to stick. That's not going to be memorable. What can I do to either make that scene feel extra special or more poignant or more interesting or what are we really going for the gusto over a longer span with this character like mm -hmm. i don't want to be known as oh jim's the writer who uh you know keeps the status quo and you're just like oh he's very good at writing in the average <laughs> the, yeah the average voice of this character and right. they do all the stuff they're supposed to makes you feel like you're reading someone else's comic yeah you're like yeah. well kind of reminds you a little bit of chris claremont by roger stern with a just a wee bit of Stan Lee mixed in there and nothing ever shocking ever happens. You're like, right. you don't want to be that, you know, right. No, you don't want to no. be. And so you also need to get out of your comfort zone. I think early on, I was, I was worried about doing it properly where it was like, I wanted, a, you know, my editor's approval at Marvel. And mm -hmm. so I would write the most iconic or the most on the nose kind of version of those characters because I knew it would get approved, right? Yeah. And I that meant I did it right. And that means that my story goes into the official handbook of the Marvel Universe as for real Marvel stuff. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And then I realized that you can give yourself guardrails that you shouldn't, where you, you're being too safe, too easy. Yep, I can hit a, a line drive just barely down the middle, you know, and, and, and do it up and no one will be displeased. Right. And you're like, okay, you will they... Right. But will they remember? 
Will they yeah. actually care the minute that they close that book? Will they be asking questions? Will they be, you know, and it's not to say I'm not here to make fans hate me, but on the other hand, yeah. they should feel something. Otherwise, why have I done this? Right. If it's literally just, you know, held the line for another month, you're well, like, Whoo, I, good one. You know, like I talk, a, a writer friend and I, we talk and, you know, she's just so she's very much focused on nothing being safe she's like right safe shit sucks you know she does and so you need to you know kind of if i don't want to argue with my editors but equally i don't want them to be so comfortable that we're right. not having like when i send them a proposal i want them to jump on a call with me because they've got questions like right. if they don't you're just sort of like what what right. and no, you yeah. should also do i mean in that proposal you're or the script you're delivering the answer like they shouldn't right. Right. They, right. they shouldn't finish it and go like zub's here to destroy us like they're right. going like, oh my god like i thought you were off the rails but will you pull it all back you, together exactly it's, exactly because right. yeah. it's it's like you know it's the temple of doom man just zipping down those you know that right that on the stuff. rail cars yeah 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 and that's what you want you want to be leaning off that edge and just going they're not going to make it but when right. you do make it right. because you rolled that natural 20 it's it's a phenomenal moment you know right and so that's kind of a thing that i think i've learned where at first i wanted to be like doing it right and making sure i hit all the right check boxes yeah. and now i'm sort of like okay i want to be I want to be excited and a little nervous about what we're doing. I want to be pushing out to that weird kind of edge or, or surprising myself and doing more of that kind of stuff, because those are the stories that hopefully will stick with people, you know, and it's not to say like, I don't need controversy for controversy's sake. Like I'm not just doing this to like shock and awe you and make you hate my guts. But right. on the other hand, if you're not talking about this book, why am I doing it? If you're not excited or intrigued or eager to get next month's issue, what the hell, yeah. you know? What yeah. Were, what were the, I mean, cause like, you know, that's, that's all amazing in, insight, you know, yeah. in, in your own sense, but like we're often not as completely, you know, self-aware in the moment. Sure. Time. So like, what were the things that like maybe brought that to your attention? Was it, was it seeing like, were you like rereading something and going like, Oh, like I, I reread the Claremont X-Men run. And That's I realized my how head transformative it was that, that from month to month, you didn't know what was going to happen to those characters. You know, yeah. when Storm uh, uh, goes to Japan and then has all those crazy adventures with Yukio and mm -hmm. goes from being the stoic goddess to the Mohawk, you know, clad punk. And you're right. just like, what the hell? Like, yeah. this is amazing. And it feels like a natural evolution of a character. And yet it's unbelievable the distance this character's crossed, you know, uh, uh, Wolverine from like the monster to the, to the samurai, you know, all these kinds of amazing transformative moments of those characters where every month you felt like if you missed it, you missed something important, missed so don't miss it, right? Yeah. The relationships are in depth and they matter and the romance is intense. And you're like, I want that, you know, I want that kind of feeling. And that doesn't mean I'm going to do a poor man's Claremont, but it's like, I just need to be thinking in that way of taking swings, right? Totally. It's harder now in the sense that obviously these are larger corporate characters and larger IPs and the characters are being used in so many different places that it's hard for them to, to you know, to give you permission to go 
wild with that stuff. You know, right. one of the things I was excited about, I wrote Champions, which is like the young heroes of Marvel. And these characters, they barely had any stories. You, you could read 50 issues and you'd have every Miles Morales story. You know what I mean? Right. And so for me, it was like, oh, great. I could make the next iconic Miles Morales story. I could make the next iconic Kamala Khan story or Sam yeah. Alexander or any of these characters and, and kind of break them and rebuild them and try things. And so what I didn't anticipate was I was, I had this old school kind of Marvel, like I'm going to grind them under the wheels of these dramatic stories, the way I loved it. And the younger audience, they were, I don't want to say traumatized. I guess I just did. They were like, you know, kind of, why are you doing this to these characters? Like, why are you hurting these kids? Oh, wow. And I was like, no, that's what you do to Marvel characters. You you grind them in the mush and then they stand up and that's why they're heroes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the previous run on the book was very, there were some stakes, but they were lower stakes and they were more, it was a more kind of a fun book. Mm -hmm. And when I came on board, uh, my editor, Tom and I, we talked and we kind of wanted old school Teen Titans, like Wolfman Perez, yeah. let's yeah. batter these characters, you know, and knock them down. And so I went in and I just knocked them all down. And yeah. the readership was like, what the hell? <laughs> Why is this guy such a dick? And I was like, I, I'm not a dick. I, I love these characters. I'm going to show you why they're heroes. I'm going to make right. them earn it. And a certain portion of the readership loved it. And a certain portion of the readership was like, this guy's a masochist. <laughs> it was kind of fascinating because well, as far I was trying to emulate the books that blew my mind. You know yeah, I mean? well, that's—I mean—that's the thing. I mean, like, if you think about those, you know, first three, four years of of, of Titans, and, yeah, and also, you know, the first three years of uh, the New Mutants. You yeah, know, like yeah, these yeah. books. Like, I mean, neither trauma way. machines. They're oh, just trauma God. machines. Oh yeah, punishing and yeah, it, yeah. Right? But like I, but like the funny thing is, is that like I think like when you get that response, like, but I think the difference too is that the culture we're in now. I couldn't yell at Chris Claremont on social media. No. Would I would I have? Like if I was a kid and they yeah. were doing that to the new mutants, would sure. I have barked off to that guy? I yeah. don't know because I can't imagine that scenario because I didn't have the internet as a kid, right? Right. You know, but now you can. Now yeah. the creator is not just a name on a credit or whatever, but you can contact them and give them a piece of your mind. And that's a fascinating thing and it's good and it's bad and it's everything in between right where yeah. someone can now tell me i'm sure if i had met claremont i would be like i can't believe you did that to you know whatever i get madeline Pryor or any of these characters why are you so mean but but i didn't you know what i mean because i was just letting the story happen because i had no control over it and now the fandom has they have different levers and that is cool and it's also kind of weird and 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 i don't i don't i don't think it's wrong no. but it changes the discourse right it, because it, now it, it modifies it modifies the it modifies the behavior of when the, you get pummeled by fans yeah. and dozens and dozens of them tell you you're a piece of crap yeah you can't help but sort of either there's some people who use that as an excuse to pull back and there's yeah. other people who use the excuse to drive forward they're like oh Oh, I made you, I got a response out of you. Great. Watch this. I'll be even crueler next time. You know what I mean? But that thing is, it's like, I mean, the reaction that's happening isn't happening at the end of the story. 
You know right, I mean? right, no right. One's, no one's reading the story and finishing you and going it. like, okay, now yeah. I got to be mad about you know midway point the specific like, thing yeah what yep. it is that they're reacting to the feeling that's happening to them at the moment which is completely justified and sure valid. and but you're also like look there are so many writers and creators who want to create things that that generate discussion yeah so if all that discussion isn't positive but it's happening you've done something amazing in the For sense sure. of you've created you know, art and art evokes an emotion and, and people are, the reason why they're so dedicated to the Marvel universe is because they see themselves in it and they're excited by it and they're engaged by it. And uh -huh. so when I'm writing, you know, my first run on Thunderbolts and Bucky Barnes, is, the Winter Soldier is one of the characters. And that's the only book that he's appearing in regularly when I'm writing it as Civil Wars coming out right. and everyone loves the Winter Soldier and people are sending me fan mail and they're like, you know, we love Bucky and please have him do more things. And there's a hardcore segment of the fan base that is also like, we think that he's in love with Steve Rogers and you should have him get together with Steve. And you're like, I can't do that. Like I have no control of, of right. you know, his, those romantic decisions, especially on an IP and characters that are now, you know, global. Yep. That it's not even just, even if I could justify it to my editor, there's three levels above them that are not going to let that happen. Yeah. But it's amazing to me that you are, your passion for these characters is filtered down to this point where I'm answering this fan mail or I'm getting this discussion. You know what I mean? Like that is an incredible thing to be in the midst of at any particular point. You know what I mean? So th this is, this is an interesting thing that, that I'm, I'm, thinking about why you're saying this stuff is that a film has has a very narrow duration two sure. hours you're in you're out the whole all the motion happens and it's done right with a comic book run people know that this is an extension there's a lot of right. stuff months and months are going to go by yeah so they their emotions are on on tenter hooks ostensibly for a month period at a time do they but have you've also got i mean but this is because the movies have such a bigger footprint oh that's yeah. why you have this echoing outpouring of fan art and fan fiction and and people making their own scenarios and imagining their own storylines and fan and casting movies before they've even been announced it, it is like there there were people doing it 40 years ago oh sure but now but there was nothing feeding it there was nothing yeah. you know, well and, and you couldn't find your own tribe like hopefully you'd find two or three people you could have a discussion with sure. but now you can find hundreds and you can argue about it and you can yeah you, you know, know yeah confirmation bias is, is a wonderful thing it's wild it's amazing yeah but do here's the thought is if someone's going back and rereading claremont's runs or reading right the, are they like are they stopping in the middle of that trade paperback and, and getting yeah. an angry tweet to Marvel? Sure. No, they're not because they see a final part to it because there's right. a back right. cover. Right. right, And there is no back cover on the monthly thing. They don't know if this, like, if the next issue is the is last. Is this the new normal, right? Seven, right. Yeah. And But what's fascinating is, you know, on the one hand, you're in the middle of the magic trick, but it's going to yeah. take six months. And someone's yelling at you and you don't want to say, the rabbit's not dead. Right. Don't worry about it. Right. It'll come out of the hat. Because no, like, then you know, I don't want to say, yeah. Don't worry, guys. Good guys are going to beat the villains. Yeah, the fact right. that you're so mad at me that you it's think the villains are going to win is amazing. That you're yes. yelling at me on Twitter yeah. or something 
because I took away the thing when it's obvious, it should be obvious. Should it be obvious? I don't know. To well, someone who writes, you think and go, well, they're not going to let that guy stay dead or they're not right. going to do that thing. I'm fascinated to see how they're going to pull this out. Yeah. But a segment of the fandom, whether they are, I don't know if it's naivety or whatever, it's fascinating. But if you'd have asked me when I was 12 or 13, I probably would have thought they're really dead too. You know what I mean? So, but I had no outlet to tell people. No, yeah. Right? We, we just, we just, we had to struggle and suffer with our, our, our. If, if a character showed up in the, in the handbook of the Marvel universe, in the, in the deceased section, oh that was God. as permanent as it got. They were really friggin' dead. That's that's a really good point. Like that that really that's because that's canon, you know. It's, You're like, it's in the encyclopedia yeah. that says this is the stuff, this and it, it shows the deceased date. Yeah. So the first couple of times a character would get resurrected and they were no longer in that deceased portion, there was a part of me that felt cheated. Like, wait, yeah. no, but you said they were dead in the book where it says yeah. all the things. I got it know? right here. That's yeah. right. And then you and then you you know when the curtain gets pulled and you go, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah. justify it in the creative decisions, and the editors change, and someone says that it is a good idea. You should yeah. bring that character back. Yeah, Why not? yeah. yeah, no. It's. Right? It, it, I mean, it's. I mean, it's a thing because I mean, listen. There are only so many Lego shapes, right. and like each one of those. Characters... But the difference as well. Again, when we were kids, we didn't have the entire archive in front of us. No. Right. No. So now you've got someone can go through and they can literally count the number of Christmases and go. Wait a minute. These characters aren't 70 years old. Right. And you're like, don't worry about who the president was. Don't worry about the bell bottoms. Don't worry about the, you yeah. know, 80s crop tops and all that stuff. Yeah. The leg warmers and that you have to kind of ignore that. And all we know are is bad guys. All yeah, the bad fought, guys punks. <laughs> that's right. They fought a Dr. Octopus a lot of times. They've yeah. fought many times. That's all you need to know. Yeah. You know, and then you can make a reference to the fact that, you know, Dr. Otto Octavius tried to marry Aunt May. Don't worry about what era that was or what the music was playing or what pop culture references there were. It happened. Okay, cool. Got it. You know. Yeah, just yeah. carry just carry on. So when you get your when do you get your if you've got give yourself 3 hours, you know, if you're right. if you're, if you're writing after dinner till, you know, bedtime-ish is right. is bedtime your reading time to for research or yeah yeah it's pretty wild so what i'm usually doing is i'm loading up reference pdfs and stuff i get from marvel onto my tablet and then i'm sitting in bed and i'm reading you know a handful of issues before i crash out when i'm heading up to the school i take the subway up to the york university campus i've got about 45 minutes to an hour depending okay, on good whatever and i'm just sitting there on the train and i'm reading and writing you know there as well there and back right yeah. so yeah yeah it's yeah, it's interesting. Now, so, so like it, it's interesting because you know what what the, the the fear is as a writer of writing comic books of you know existing IP is that you <clears throat> don't want to be sort of eating your own children in that respect. Sure, so you you know. So where where do you where do you find your story outside of the comic you know verse in that sense? In terms of finding ideas for stories well yeah i mean i'm not saying <clears throat> where, where do you find your stories Jim? Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's like but the thing is, is like that's where all the like i know like i have to like always consciously like pay attention to stuff sure so i'm i'm getting things that are outside of like 
just science fiction and fantasy. Oh, totally. I mean, everything from whatever the news to crazy conversations, you're writing little bits down. You're writing yeah. bits down about different conflicts happening in the world or weird science that you read about or some yep. little bit or piece. Or, and then you couple that with the research that you're doing on the specific characters in their world and weird, you know, sparks as you jam these things together start yeah. to sort of pop up where you say to yourself, well, this has always been like this. Does it always have to be like this? Do you know right. what I mean? Or, or these are the core traits of the character. How do we test those? Right. So, you know, the, the classic one is, uh, you know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility, which is the Spider-Man origin story. Well, so you have to put Peter Parker in situations where he proves his responsibility, where he makes hard decisions. And there is doubt in terms of which decision he will make and why. Right. Yeah. And so that's the obvious one. But you, are there new ways to do that? Always. There's always new ways sure. to do that. There's always new choices that need to be made. There's always dark, you know, hallways that Peter can go down and then pull himself back from the brink. Right. And so you just have to try and figure out what those are. And then with a character like Spider-Man, where there are hundreds and hundreds of stories, you can narrow the filter by saying, well, it's going to be this villain. Well, thank God there's way less stories with that villain. So now I can sort of filter for that particular character and kind of go, well, what have we not seen in that particular conflict with that particular villain? Yeah. I did a Batman story for Legends of the Dark Knight. And when someone says, hey, do you want to do a Batman story? You say yes. And then you get off the phone and then you get you know dry heaves because you're like, how am I going to tell a Batman story that's not same old, same old? Like, how can right. I do something that hasn't been done before? Like, what's left? You know, Batman shovels his driveway with snow. Batman eats a taco. Like, there's, well, I don't know. Like, and so you start freaking out and then you go, wait, wait, wait. There is a rogues gallery. Okay, if I narrow it to a villain, now I have a focal point and it's Batman reacting to what the villain's doing. And I can yeah. do something that hasn't been done before with that villain. And now we have a bit of a different Batman story instead of it just being like, how can I tell the ultimate Batman story? Right. Right. Because yeah. the the majority of the, the stories were sure. The, the, those things were ideas that percolated and developed. And someone yeah. says, Hey, I've got this great idea. And then you, right. you're, rather than saying here's the here's an assignment come up with something and like, right and it's you know it's then also your ability to write these iconic characters several times and build up your own understanding and voice for them before yeah. you really go okay i can strike right at the heart of everything that makes this character perfect unless frank sure unless you're frank you know there was um <clears throat> they did uh, uh marvel comics 1000 uh and that was this uh, incredible book where most of the writers got one page to do a story. And so you could do something, you know, most people did kind of goofy stuff or very iconic stuff because what else have you got time for, right? right? I did a Blade story and it's basically a pun. It's like a joke. And it's like, well, I got to do Blade. That was fun. And then uh, Brad Meltzer did one of the most beautiful, perfect Spider-Man stories heartwarming touching almost makes you want to cry in one page yeah and i was just like ah oh, that's why he's a real writer and i'm just <laughs> some hack. what the hell man like what yeah. the hell so beautiful it's so brilliant and you're just like okay you know every so often inspiration strikes and you realize you've got something really valuable or important to say mm -hmm. and and go for the gusto you know what i mean and it's like all right never take any of that for granted like next yeah. time I get to do one of these kind of anniversary books or whatever. I did a, it's coming out uh, in a couple months. Um, 
there's the digital, you know, comics that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and the good thing is, is that you can pick sort of for the team books, you can pick kind of characters who don't normally get the spotlight. So there's an Avengers uh, digital story I've got coming out and it's all about Jarvis. Oh, cool. The guy who takes care of the Avengers mansion. And there's something very simple and sweet and, and beautiful about it. And I'm really, really proud of it. And uh, it turned out amazing. It's oh, like, cool. it's the kind of story that would be in the back of an Avengers annual and yeah. people would remember it. And years from now they'd go, there's this great story that's all about. And I and I, I know that sounds very cocky to say that, no. but I'm super, super proud of it. And it, yeah. it hits those emotional beats that I wanted. And it, it all kind of just delivers. And I'm like, I gotta do more like that. Like if I get the chance to do those little offbeat stories, hit, punch you right in the heart and and go for it because that's the stuff that's going to stick around with people oh uh, yeah i mean that's i mean that's the thing is that you you're the whole i guess you know our goal when writing is to get to that character and yeah, yeah. the essence of that character to the reader right? and make the character made the reader want to be you know in that character's foot absolutely that. yeah you know i'm writing this uh new run on thunderbolts and it's yeah, ostensibly great. it's it's you know hawkeye's book yeah. him trying to pull together this team that he didn't assemble, you know, and, and make it work. And it's, he's got this midlife crisis element of, man, the only time I can remember being happy was when I was running the West coast Avengers. I, dude, I thought that was a great reference. Yeah. Let's get the West coast Avengers back together. And yeah. then he doesn't get them, but he gets a different team. And it's sort of like, well, I asked for a team and I got a team. I got to make, you know, got to, got to spin this, uh, you know, into gold and, and trying not to screw it up but all eyes are on him and this very public facing thing and all of his own kind of misgivings and, and problems and internal and external kind of issues are going to haunt him through this miniseries. And I'm really, really excited for people to see how it all plays out. And some of it is very much the comics I grew up on, the superhero stuff that I love and other parts of it are kind of very wacky isms of modern Marvel that I like, you know, And I, I went into it and just said, I'm going to write a superhero book that I would have loved as a reader and that I would love now as a reader. And if people like it, then their, their qualities, you know, are very much in line with my own. And if they don't like it, cool, man, there's nothing I can do about that. Like, I've just got to write the book that I think is awesome. And that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to matter, you know? Yeah, no, I, it, it, you said, I sent you sent me the first issue and it really, the kickoff is great. Thanks, man. I love the whole, you know, getting the band back together thing. Yeah, and in the the introduction of characters, old or new, in yeah. ways where you instantly know what their baseline is and what they want and how, why they're there. And that's what a good team book and a good first issue felt like to me when I was growing up. Yep. And I feel like sometimes, because they hit the reset button so often on these comics, a first issue just feels like another random issue. And so you don't have a sense of here's a starting position. And mm-hmm. so I said, no, we're going to have a distinct starting position and we're going to create a framework, a narrative framework to have Clint learn about these people as the reader learns about them. So we can get our, you know, exposition loaded in a way that's funny and entertaining and gets everyone in a forward, you know, momentum. Yeah, and that yeah. was really what I want. So to me, it's like, I think it's one of the best, superhero scripts I've written. I think it's one of the best first issues I've written because it it does all the things that I wanted it to do. And then Sean, 
Isaac, the amazing artist I work yeah. with, he delivered on the storytelling and all the little fun expressions and everything else. And so you put it all together. It's like, yeah, that's what I think a good superhero comic is. And yeah. if you like it, then we're probably already friends. You just don't know it yet. You know, <laughs> like that's, that's kind of how I feel about the book. And, oh, and totally. And yeah. I think you did, I think you did a great thing when you were you know you were saying like you know we we the reader gets to you know to kind of learn along with you but the beauty yeah. I think you did is you baked in a handful of characters who already know so yes. you know Luke and the marketing people they already know so what they're going to do is they're going to be able to pull strings they're going to be able to give us that that sort of information off sort of camera yeah. from yeah. from the main character and the story and i think that's so it's great so you can really do a whole lot of yeah you know they're not going to like it when they get there but you listen we have to do this and you're exactly like, and the reader's like what, what do you what do you mean you know and then we get to see what clint's reaction to it is it's it's a it's a clever it's a clever clever it was way fun it. it was a really fun book to put together and i'm really stoked for people to read the upcoming issues every issue's got fun little twisty bits and and fun character moments and a lot of warmth and a lot of heart. Like when I pitched it to Marvel, I very much had this idea of like, let's do, you know, Avengers by way of Ted Lasso. Like let's make a lot of heart. Let's make a lot of, you know, characters struggling against themselves as much as they're struggling against external forces. And that's very much the headspace of Clint in this. Like he's not the best guy for the job, but he's the guy doing the job and yep. he's got to figure out how to be the best one for it. And that there's something fun about that. There's something very real about that. And you sort of lean into it and, and a lot of fun character bits come out of it. And so, yeah, just trying to make, I, I feel like my early kind of writing career was very much like I'm going to kind of hit, all the check boxes and do the things the way you're supposed to. Yeah. And now I feel more confident. Like I'm writing a book I think is great and I can tell you why I think it's great. And if I get enough excitement, the art team and the editorial, everyone's going to be in the right headspace and we're just going to charge for it. You know, it's, it's the, listen, the magic, the, the, the magic sauce, when we call it the Zub sauce or the Zub rub. <laughs> I mean, the point is, is that like what you want is you, when you're reading something or if you can say feel the excitement of the person right who's thing it, it it's it's worth its weight in gold and yep. it, it yep. translates and that's what you, you aim for when you read the dungeons and dragons comics you know how much i love D. &D. yeah when you read conan the barbarian hopefully what you feel is decades worth of my own excitement for the hyborian age and growing yeah. up reading those books and reading those roy thomas comics and everything else right when you read this upcoming, I'm doing Unbreakable Red Sonya for Dynamite. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's a character I think is really awesome. And she's in the Hyborian Age. And we're going to show you how she's different from Conan and what she does and why she's so amazing and why the character has lasted as long as she has. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, we just announced uh, Rick and Morty versus Cthulhu. And it's like, cool. love love Lovecraft stuff and all of its weird insanity and its quirkiness and its awfulness. And it's it, it's like the 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 cosmic sort of relentless horror of it but now we're able to sort of lovingly and cruelly elbow drop it because it's rick and morty and we're going to tear it apart and we're going to talk about lovecraft the racist and lovecraft the paranoid schizophrenic and like all these things and kind of go look it's all these things and it's under under the spotlight of we know the genre tropes and that's why we can deconstruct them and mess with them and mess with your mind and so 
all the projects I'm working on right now have got that kind of quality to them where they're things that I care deeply about yeah. and I'm going to try and transfer that energy through my brain out the keyboard into the page. And when the artist reads it, they're having a good time. And when the reader reads it, they're having the best time. Yeah. So, that's, that's yeah. the way to do it, my friend. That's the plan. That's the goal. That's so. awesome. So, um, What's the timeline for people to see all the stuff and how long is the miniseries? So Thunderbolts just launched uh, yep. September. So it's five issues. So we're going to be oh. running through December. Right. Oh, no, it was August, end of August. So it's through December. Um, I've got uh, Unbreakable Red Sonia launches next month, October. Sweet. I think the first issue will be out in time for New York Comic Con, which I will be at. Um, I've got uh, uh, Rick and Morty versus Cthulhu launches in December. I've got Murder World that Ray Fox and I are co-writing at Marvel, which is like an insane take on everyone's favorite, you know, murderous game show host at Marvel. That is an insane pitch that he and I came up with. That pitch is old enough to vote. We came up with that pitch 18 years ago and pitched it to Joe Cusada when we had no credits. Uh, <laughs> we had a, a, a friend who was a contact who knew Joe and got it in front of him. And the feedback we got was essentially, this sounds kind of neat. Who the hell are these people? Right. Like, why would we, why would your first writing credit be a Marvel book? That's insane. Yeah. And so it's fun to have it all come back around. Um, so we're doing this five issue thing called murder world. Um, that launches November. Rick and Morty, Cthulhu's December. And then next year I'm relaunching Conan the Barbarian at Titan. So I'm the yeah. I'm the flagship Conan writer uh coming out of the gate there. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Other than that, nothing. Pretty bored. Okay. Just just chilling out, watching yeah. chilling and watching Netflix, I guess. That's yeah, sure. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So lots of fun stuff. That's great. I'm really pumped for it. Yeah, yeah. having a blast. It's super exciting. Um, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate no it. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully people found it interesting. We kind of, we tripped through some interesting corridors and uh, some neat little bits about, about my mentality on the thing. So yeah. 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 And uh, all the, it, all the contact stuff, how to find you online. Uh, yeah. Jim Super it'll, simple. It'll it's all be, we do. They'll, they'll, they can find this stuff. It's awesome. It's a, it's a few, the magic days of now. That's right. Later and have a Take good Take care. One.